0: So we are concluding our series titled, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year. I, uh, I was just saying to some people out in the foyer before this service started, I said, you know, when I was a kid, I used to long expectantly for Christmas to come, and now I just want it to be over. Anybody else feel that way? Oh man, I'm just like, this is like the most stressful time of the year. And that's actually a statistic, that out of all the months out of the year, guess what the most stressful time of the year is? December. Guess when the ER is to see the most patients? December. (laughs) Guess when uh, the lawyers are the most busy? December. It's the most stressful time of the year, most wonderful time of the year. How many of you are still waiting for packages that you ordered on the second like I have? How many of you had a package on that FedEx truck that got uh, swiped out on the New Jersey Turnpike? Man, it's full of stress, right? And I I wish I wouldn't have to say this every single year, but it is. It's like the most stressful time of the year, and I'm just like, man, will this day just be over? Come on, Christmas, get over with. Take a moment to reflect on this past week. I woke up Monday morning to news reports of a terrorist attack in Australia. Two people eventually died, along with that terrorist who died. That night on the news, there were reports of a man who was running loose in Bucks County. He had killed his ex wife's entire family, six people in all. I think he eventually killed himself as well. I woke up the following morning to Pakistani uh, news about how 126 children died in an elementary school because the Taliban entered in. I spent the rest of that day uh, dealing with domestic disputes between friends and family. And I'm just like, man, is this time of the year just really the most wonderful time of the year? Is that even a valid statement? Can it really be true? We as a people are very selfish. As a human race, we are incredibly selfish people. We all have these self-reigning hearts. I talk about that a lot as the nature of sin. We have these self-reigning hearts, and it says that I am going to be king of my world. And when you become king of your world, and all of a sudden, what do we have? We have these disputes because I don't want you coming into my kingdom. You don't want me coming into your kingdom, so we're going to fight against each other, and we're going we're to hold up our barriers. We're going to defend our kingdom, and all of a sudden, disputes take place. And suffering begins to take place because I want all these things. I don't don't care about you. I don't care if you're starving out there. I don't care if you're hungry. I don't care if you're you're in need. These are my things. This is my money. These are my possessions. I worked hard for those things. I'm not going to give them away. Self-reigning heart. We are selfish people and we are suffering because of it. We are self-consumed. We do not care about other people. We're all only interested about gaining power and getting our own expansion of our own kingdoms. And if you're ever getting in my way, watch out, because my anger and my power is going to unleash on you. And all of a sudden, we have the most wonderful time of the year, the most horrible time of the year, in a lot of ways. But of course, we never said that the most wonderful time of the year was about how the world defined Christmas, right? We mentioned that on day one, that the most wonderful time of the year truly is a wonderful time of the year because... We know that we have these problems. We know we're selfish. We know we're hurting. We know we're suffering. And God did something about it. That is why this is a wonderful time of the year, right? Amen. That is why this is the most wonderful time of the year. And so my family and I were talking about all of these things, all the news reports and what our days were like the last week. And uh, over dinner on Wednesday night, my son looks over at me and he says, come lord quickly jesus i'm like wow that's ethan that's really profound and he says dad that's what it says he was looking at an advent calendar above my head on the back wall and i was like wow yeah come lord jesus into our situations into our household in our lives come jesus quickly you know that's how the bible ends the very last lines of the book of revelation are come quickly lord jesus The book of Revelation is a a book all about the pain and the suffering and what God was doing with it through the the slaughtered lamb, Jesus Christ, and what he was going to continue to do in the future. It's his answer to the violence in the world. Jesus Christ, the slain lamb. That's the answer to the violence in the world. It's the answer to the suffering in the world. And what Matthew is so eager to communicate in our series as we conclude chapter 2, of the most wonderful time of the year in Matthew. He's so eager to communicate what God is doing to solve the world's problems. We talked about this last week a little bit, that through the exodus and, and uh, through going down into Egypt and coming up back out of Egypt, he's talking about how he's going to release his people from the bondage that they find themselves in. He's all talking about how this child born into this world, into this family, into this day and age, is going to release the world from the burden it finds itself in. This is Matthew's agenda, to promise salvation and a release from the bondage and to show how he as the rightful king is returning to his people. That is what Matthew was eager to communicate in the first two chapters of Matthew and we're going to conclude chapter two and we're actually going to jump back into chapter one a little bit as well to discuss how Matthew is communicating this. And so we pick up where we left off last week and I encourage you to follow along if you have your scriptures with us open them up to chapter two of Matthew. You might have it on an app in your phone as well, and you're welcome to pull those out at this point. As you're doing that, let me give you a little bit of context. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Joseph and Mary needed to go there from Judea to participate in the census. Herod wanted a count of all the people in his region, and so he issued a census, a decree, that all the people must be counted. And so Joseph and Mary needed to go back to their ancestral home of Bethlehem. While Mary is in Bethlehem, she gives birth to Jesus. Way out east, however, there are these astronomers who had noticed some sort of, you know, astrological phenomenon in the skies taking place. And so they were convinced that they needed to journey from where they were in the east all the way across the world to Bethlehem as well. But they didn't go to Bethlehem initially, they went to Jerusalem, because if anyone who is of royalty is going to be born into the world, it's going to be in the capital city of a major country. And so they go to Jerusalem, of course, but Herod doesn't know anything of this baby being born. His scribes tell him that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, would be born in Bethlehem. And so he tells the magi, the astronomers, to go back to Bethlehem, find the baby there, and when they find him, come back and tell him, because he wants to go and worship him too. But Herod, of course, doesn't want to worship the child, he wants to kill the child. And so, when the Magi decide to return to Jerusalem, they are warned in a dream not to go that direction, so they go some other route. Joseph, however, is also warned in a dream that people are coming to kill him, because Herod gets ticked off real easily. He doesn't want a king born into his kingdom, and so he decides that he's going to go to Bethlehem, kill all the baby boys two years and under. Joseph is warned of a dream they flee to Egypt. And while he is in Egypt, he is warned in another dream that Herod has died, so it's okay now to go back to Jerusalem. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 19. It says this, "'After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, "'Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead.' So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel." But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called the Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father in heaven, we do need your insight this morning to understand this text. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, open hearts, Father, and open minds to receive your word, and may it do a good work in us to change us, to become more like you, Father, in this world, that we would be more loving, less selfish, more patient, less rude, Father. And may your spirit, may these things be done. Amen. So Joseph receives word that Herod is dead. And so presumably, he thinks, man, it's safe to go back to Judea. Let's go. Let's get out of Egypt. Let's go back to Judea. Now, the problem was Caesar Augustus, who is the true authority of the land, sitting on his throne in Rome, doesn't trust any of Herod's children. He doesn't want any of his children to rule the entire land of Judea, and so he divides up the country in three pieces. He gives the portion of Judea to Herod's son, Archelaus, But Archelaus immediately, in order to establish his rule in the land, takes the 3,000 leading citizens in Judea and he slaughters them. He says, you guys put your trust in them. You're going to put your trust in me because here's what I'll do if you don't. And so Joseph is like, oh man, I'm not going to that guy's reign. I'm not going to that guy's kingdom. That guy's crazy. I'm not going there. I'm not taking my family there. So with good reason, he fears to go to Judea. So instead he goes north to Galilee where the more pleasant, tame son Antipas ruled. Joseph and his family settle in Nazareth, and again, Matthew sees this settling of Nazareth as a prophetic fulfillment. Verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, you need to know something about Matthew. He looks at the Old Testament, and he picks every single little detail out, and he says, man, look at how this fulfills, uh, look how Jesus is fulfilling this little detail. Look how Jesus is fulfilling this little detail. Oh man, it's a, uh, oh yeah, here, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. 42 explicit Old Testament quotes in Matthew's Gospel. Way more than any of the other Gospel writers. Matthew was very interest, interested in looking back at the Old Testament and saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that took place in the Old Testament. This section, chapters 1 and 2 alone, has already made four explicit references. Not to mention chapter 1, which is basically one long explicit reference to the Old Testament. But he concludes by saying that Jesus is a Nazarene, and the funny thing is that there is no specific reference to Jesus being a Nazarene in the Old Testament. So you need to understand what Matthew is trying to communicate here. He's saying that Jesus will be the Nazarene, and Nazir, the word, literally means branch. Now to us, it's like, man, it's kind of rude to be calling people branches, it's not very kind, and really, what does it really mean? It doesn't seem all that significant. But remember what Matthew is trying to communicate, that Jesus is the hope of the world. That in a world that is wrought with suffering and chaos and horror and pain, Jesus is the branch. Doesn't that give you a lot of hope, guys? Doesn't that make you excited? Jesus is the branch. Amidst your pain and amidst your suffering, Jesus is the branch. Who's excited? Who's excited? Yeah, all right. Jesus, the branch. Come on, get with me here. Let me give you a little context to maybe help you understand that a first-century audience understanding that Jesus is the branch would have got really, really excited. Let me tell you why. Isaiah chapter eleven. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's father. Okay. From his roots, a what? Branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions. To the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. What? And the young child will put its hands into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on any of my holy mountain. And I love this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This gets me excited. This gets the first century Jewish people excited that justice will come upon the earth. That the oppression of the earth will be released as the branch arrives. That those who are suffering in the chaos, who need the might and the wisdom of God, will receive it when the branch arrives. Does this get anybody excited? Am I alone now? Come on, guys. The branch is here. Okay, let me continue then. It wasn't just Isaiah. Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. A king who will reign wisely. Who needs wise reigning in their life right now? Who needs wisdom? Who needs might and the power of God in their lives right now, right? The branch is here. He will do what is just and right in the land. Who is oppressed and needs justice? In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name of which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. You guys getting excited about the branch yet? All right. It's not just that. He continues in thirty-three, fifteen. In those days and in that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from whose line? David's line. And he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name of which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. It wasn't just Isaiah and Jeremiah that spoke highly of the branch, however, Zechariah 3 says, I am going to bring my servant the branch and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Can I get an amen for the branch? Oh man, who gets excited about the branch? I love the branch. I love the branch. We need the branch. Who needs the branch? Give yes, round of applause for the branch. Seriously. You know, I'm kind of a Bible nerd, I get it, right? But like, man, I love the branch. I get excited about the branch. We need the branch, people. We need the branch. Our world needs the branch because the branch will distribute justice. The branch will be a righteous branch that will bring justice to the oppressed, and it will take the suffering of the world and it will heal it. It will be our righteous Savior for those who are drowning in their sin and acknowledge their sin, their self-reigning hearts. The branch will be our Savior. And there are several other texts we could have read from, but I think these give you the point, do they not? Get excited about the branch. Matthew looked at, his, at his, uh, the holy family settling in Nazareth, and he says, man, that's a fulfillment of Jesus being the branch. Jesus is the branch. He's the righteous Savior. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one this world needs. He is the branch. And there's so many days this past week when I just wanted to throw my hands up in the air and say, God, what the heck is going on with this world? Not only by looking at the, the, the world headlines, but looking at my friends and my family who are just going through such horrible, hard things right now. And I'm like, what the heck is going on with the world? Is is there any good left in this world? Is there any unconditional love? Do people love each other? Is there any kindness? Is there any patience? Is there any justice for the suffering? Is there any healing for those who are wounded? God, what is going on in this world? And I was reminded, Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the answer to all the suffering in the world. He's always been God's answer to the suffering in the world. The one who would bring justice to the nations, the one who would forgive sins, the one who would heal the world, Matthew is saying is here. He's the branch. He's laying in that manger, in that feeding trough. It's an infant baby. This is God's solution to the problem of the world. And so, my friends, who needs healing? And, and healing not only from maybe a physical ailment, but who needs healing in their relationships? Who needs healing in their marriage? Who needs healing at work, within friendships and relationships that are going away there? My friends, who needs justice? Who of you needs justice right now? Who of you feel oppressed by a wrong committed against you and you're like, man, is there what's going on here? This isn't right. Who needs justice? Whose world feels flipped upside down this Christmas? Who of you hurts? Who of you suffer because you're selfish? Who of you suffer because you choose to take when there are other people in need? And who of you suffer maybe because other people are selfish and you long for someone to be generous, but there is no one there to be generous? Who of you knows that you are in need of rescuing? It's funny because, like, if, if you were to appear into my life, for instance, from the outside I might seem like it all, I have it all together, that I don't need rescuing because I was already rescued, right? And that's what a lot of Christians' responses are going to be like, I don't need rescuing, Jesus already did that for me. And yet Jesus comes along and he says that we are to take up our cross, when? Daily. Daily. That we need to look in the mirror every single morning and repeat the gospel message to ourselves. Because... Friends, I might be a pastor, but yesterday there was plenty of sin in my life. I'm still in need of saving. Every single moment in my life, I'm in need of rescue and in need of saving. And so I, too, look to to, to, to the manger, the baby laying in the manger, and I look to the cross for what she fulfilled through the death and the suffering. And I need rescuing. And I celebrate that rescue has come. And so as you look upon the face of Jesus this Christmas, I want you to be reminded of some things. We were a people dead in our sins. We were lost in darkness and we were without hope. We were drowning in despair and we had nobody to rescue us. You know, the people of old, they try to cure this problem with sacrifices. They, they would recognize that they were deeply sinful people and they would come to an animal and they would look it in the eyes and they would lay their hands on it. They would transfer their guilt onto the animal And then they would take a a knife out of its sheath and slit its throat, and they'd say, wow, okay, that animal just took my penalty. I don't need to feel guilty anymore. But they would turn around, and what would happen? They'd feel guilty. It wouldn't do anything. It didn't cure them. It was just covering up the problem. But God, very much present in the infant Jesus, he offers us transformation. He offers us freedom. He offers us healing, not just the covering up of the problem. God came down to live a perfect life, to die the sinner's death and to defeat death by raising from the grave so that a beautiful exchange might take place. Because if you can acknowledge in your own life that you are suffering, and you are hurt and you need healing, then here is what is so beautiful about this branch laying in this manger. That this beautiful exchange takes place, that when we Jesus says, believe in him. And that's kind of one way of saying that when we place our trust in his promises, that he says, if you lay your burdens upon me, then I will in turn give you my life. I will take your death. I will take the destruction in your life. I will take the darkness in your life. I will take the hurt and the pain and the oppression and the suffering and all that may be going on in your life. And I in turn will give you my life. It's an incredible exchange. It's, it's, a, it's an exchange that blows our minds because it's not fair, right? It doesn't make sense. But this is God's love in action. And so I, I recognize, God, I'm a sinner. Yes, I, I, I feel guilty for doing these things, and I don't know why, but something in te- inside of me is telling me that something is not right with me. And so, God, I feel guilty, I feel imprisoned for these things that I have done. And, and you say then, God, that if I were to give you my guilt, then you would give me in return your freedom? That you would take my guilt upon your shoulders, which is what the cross is all about, and in turn you would give me your freedom? And God, you say that if if I I am broken and hurting, then then if I were to give you my pain and place it upon your shoulders, that in turn you would give me your healing? Healing? And God, I recognize that I'm so selfish. And if you say that I would uh, give you my selfishness in my life that in turn, that it, uh, my life really that is full of death and darkness, then in turn you would give me your life and your light. God, it's not fair. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair, we say. But God, that is your love in action. Who needs it this morning? I need it this morning. I need the exchange every single day. And if we trust that is promise to accomplish this is true and my friends for those of you who are in need of god's life this morning then participate in this exchange he's holding it up before you he's offering it before you give me your life and in turn i will give you mine and i don't know how many of you guys have analyzed your life very much But I bet if you do, you would find that you don't really want your life. You don't want the guilt. You don't want the shame. You don't want the the, the being chained to old things that you did in high school and you can't seem to, to get over it. You don't want those chains and those shackles. You want to move freely in life. You don't want the darkened conscience. You don't want the darkness. You want the light of God and the healing of God. You want the very life of God because that is what you were created to. You were created to be like God. And My friends, this Christmas, as a baby lies in a manger, as the branch lays there to fulfill all of these things, that is what Matthew was convincing his people that God came to do. That in this baby and on that cross, you can find new life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, I, uh, I can't imagine I'm the only one here, and I know I'm not. People are responding, Father. I'm not the only buddy. I'm not the only person here who, who needs forgiveness every single day of my life, Father. I can't rely on this on this conversion experience I had when I was 16 years old, Father. Because, Father, I, I don't, I don't want to be. I don't want to be a nominal christian i don't want just to be a christian in name alone i I don't want to to claim your name but then continue to live in the death and the suffering and the and the and the brokenness father i want healing and restoration of my own heart so that not only can i live the life that you have created me to live for but father that i might be a herald to the nations that as i look at people who are suffering and oh my goodness people are suffering And as I look at people who are hurt and in bondage to their own sin, Father, that I might have a response for them, that they too do not need to remain in darkness, Father, but you have cast a great light. And so God, empower us to do just this. All who agreed said, amen. And so the branch of Jesse will accomplish this, the prophet said of old. This is what the branch is about. He will bring justice and righteousness to the nations. And I know that's been done in my life, and I know it continues to be done in my life, and I pray that it will continue to be done in your life. So, notice that the branch is from the stump of Jesse. I had said that Jesse is who? David's father. Other texts we just uh, just read states that the branch came from David's line and that uh, David... Uh, for David the righteous branch will sprout, for instance. And so throughout Old Testament history and Jewish history, they understood that the Messiah, the branch, the one who would bring healing to the nations, was going to be from David's line. And so Matthew needs to convince the readers that of reading his gospel that this is truly the Messiah from David's line to do what the branches come here to do. So Matthew is very deliberate to take note that Jesus does not uh, does, in fact, come through David's line, right? It's a key component of being the true branch, to being the reconciler, to being the healer of the nation. So he has to make that point firm. And so I said in week one that we were going to come back to Matthew 1 on week four, which happens to be today. So I'm not going to read all of Matthew 1, but I want to help, you illustri- uh, I help uh, Matthew illustrate how he is so clear and concise in saying, David, David's line, the Messiah, is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Chapter one of Matthew is the genealogy. It's one of those texts in scripture that we all jump over because it's, man, it's super boring, right? It's like, oh, I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to go on to chapter two because who wants to read a bunch of list of names? Who wants to sit there sifting through all these names? But man, guys, again, I'm kind of a Bible nerd, but like I get just as excited about the genealogy as I do the branch because the genealogy is really exciting stuff. And I want to help you guys understand why, okay? Lineages were like drum rolls in Jewish thought. They were like the uh, the finale at the fireworks display. They were like the Santa Claus at the end of the Thanksgiving parade. They were like the opening act to the really, you know, poor open. They were like the actual man. They're the uh, I screwed that one up. They were the um. They're the one you came to see, right? They were the fanfare. People got excited about genealogies, and Matthew was so excited about this genealogy as well, and any Jewish person reading uh, Jesus' genealogy would have been like, whoa, that's impressive. He comes from David all the way through the kingly lines through the exile. You can still trace it. That's exciting stuff. I'm not making it very exciting. I, I, I know that, so bear with me here. Many people have pointed out that there are a lot of oddities in Uh, Jesus' lineage. A lot of people, for instance, when they were writing lineages in the first century, they wouldn't have included women because women had no social standing in the first century. They wouldn't have included Gentiles, especially within a Jewish genealogy, but uh, Matthew does include the Gentiles as well. And then the people that Matthew chooses to include are like, man, really? Out of all the people in the Old Testament that you could have chosen to put into Matthew's genealogy, you chose these people? For instance, in verse 3, he says that Tamar is part of the lineage of Jesus. Well, Tamar was the one who disguised herself as a prostitute so that she could sleep with her stepfather, Judah. One of those type of people, right? Yeah, so Rahab in verse 5, right? Rahab was a non-Jewish prostitute who eventually got grafted into the line as well. He mentions Ruth. Ruth is a Gentile. If you're working on a Jewish lineage, you don't include the Gentiles. And then Bathsheba, well, we all know who Bathsheba was. She was that adulterer who slept with David and, um, you know, participated in that whole shenanigan so that David would eventually kill her husband uh, so that they could be together the mother and father of Solomon. Now, Matthew is very intent in including the Gentiles and the women and also the very sinful people because who is Jesus for? The least of these. Man, he's for the sinner as well as the saint. He's for the women who don't have no social standing, as well as the men. He's for the Gentile, as well as the Jew. And so all of these people are engrafted into Jesus' line, and Matthew is very interested and intentional about claiming that. But more importantly, Matthew is structuring his genealogy in such a way as to scream, David! This is David! This is the king who would sit on David's throne. He says that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, historically, this isn't true. There are way more uh, uh, generations in each of these categories, but Matthew is deliberate in saying that there were 14, because numbers had a significant meaning in biblical and Hebraic language. In both the Greek and the Hebrew language, each letter had a numerical value. Some of you may know this. It's called gemetria. You can actually add up the numbers associated with each letter of a name, and you would arrive at a number. And so in the first century, they were giving highly influential political figures numbers. Anybody who had a high ranking in society would receive a number in association with the added addition of their name, the numbers of their name. It was a popular game among kids, and everyone in the first century was doing it. We actually see this in Revelation 13 a little bit. John writes, This calls for wisdom. Many of you probably know this text. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. We all know that, right? And so in John's day, there was graffiti all over Rome. People were graffitiing all over Rome, mocking its ruler in this graffiti. Their ruler was Emperor Nero at the time. And they would use... Nero's number. Does anybody want to take a guess at what Nero's number in Greek was? 1,005. Okay, his number was 1,005 in the Greek language. But John says that this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. So use your wisdom. What other language might John be referring to? Hebrew. Anyone want to take a guess at what Nero's number in Hebrew was? 666. And so, highly influential, significant figures in society would receive numbers. And it wasn't just with the current day emperors, they would do this with their Old Testament kings as well in a reference. So, go back to Matthew. Many people in the first century knew that David's number was 14. Matthew is screaming, This is David! That's why I'm structuring my genealogy the way I am. This is David! 14, 14, 14. Do you guys get the point? This is David. This is the Messiah who would sit on David's throne. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is the branch. He is the rightful king, the prophets had spoken of. The stump of Jesse, the branch. The one who would sit on David's throne is here. He would bring justice to the nations. He would set the world right the fulfillment of all prophecies is here. This is God's redemption, born into this family, into this world now. This is Jesus, the one we have been waiting for. That is what Matthew is so eager to communicate. And anybody in the first century who needed healing, anybody in the first century who knew that they were sinful and needed Justice because they were feeling oppressed. Anybody in the first century who knew that the world was flipped upside down and wayward would have been so excited that the branch, the fulfillment of David, had come into this world. And that is what Matthew was so eager to communicate. All the way through chapter one through chapter two of Genesis, as he talks about how the people ended down in Egypt and how he brought them up out of slavery and how the babies who were slaughtered in Bethlehem and how. That was a, 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 an Old Testament reference to God's kingdom returning to his people and his presence among his people. That is what Matthew is so eager to communicate, my friends. If you receive any word from the most wonderful time of the year, receive this. Matthew 1 and 2 is all about how God looked upon a broken, hurting, selfish world, a world that was enshrouded in death and in darkness, and he did something about it. And his answer is Jesus lying in a manger, eventually destined to be born, to die upon a cross, to raise from the dead so that you might be free. That is Matthew 1 and 2 in a nutshell. I'm going to invite Kate up. We're going to offer you a time of reflection. You know, the, the, the challenge about the Emmanuel a term meaning God with his people, is that it requires reliance and dependence upon us to be within the presence of God. And so God is here. And his healing is here, right? And his justice to the nations is here. And His light has pierced the darkness, and all of these things are here, and it's evident that they are here because I see signs in my life, I see signs in my friend's life, I see signs in this entire room that God is present among His people, right? But then I go home, and I'm like, oh man, that was, that was a really sweet church service today, and I'm, I'm and I'm on fire now, and I'm excited to go out into the world, and and by dinner time, it's like, oh, what what did what did Ross say in church again this morning? It requires abiding. It requires resting. It requires that we sit in the very presence of God, the Emmanuel, and we let his presence wash over us, and we let it conform to, or we let ourselves conform to it, and we let it transform us from the inside out. And every day as I wake up, I need to remind myself of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I'm not my sin, that I'm, I'm not that old identity, that I have been forgiven, that I have been rescued, that I have been reconciled, and I have been redeemed. I need to remind myself of that all the time, because there's always the Satan figure running around. He's like, man, really? You said you believe in Jesus, and you did that? But then the challenge is this, because as a people who have been reconciled to God and who have experienced the power of the branch to transform us, Matthew takes this theme of the Emmanuel and he ends his gospel the same way. He says at the very end of his gospel, Behold, I will be with you to the very end of the age. The Emmanuel will always be with you. God will always be among his people. His healing, his restoration, his reconciliation will always be among his people. But if you remember how Matthew ends... It ends with a challenge. I'm among my people not just so that they can, you know, feel good about themselves. I'm among my people for a reason because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. You know those self-raining hearts that we have? That selfishness that we all live out of from time to time? That, that 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 heart that says, I have the authority. The authority is mine. Well, God says, what are you talking about? All authority is mine. On heaven and earth, all authority is mine. And so if you claim authority, it's a fake authority. If you you claim to, to rule and to reign in this world, it is a usurped authority. You've stolen it from God. It's not yours. You want your will? Go ahead, live in your will and see the good that it does for you. But if you want to be free, and if you want to move forward in this life progressively into healing and into restoration and to be the person that you were created to be, then you need to give up that authority and give it back to God. And then as we do that, and we could probably all testify about the goodness that has done in our lives and how we've been transformed and how we've been changed. But then he goes on to say, go into all the world, baptizing them, And teaching them to obey. And that word obedience, right? We don't want to hear obedience because that contradicts my authority. Teaching all the world who is self reigning and establishing their own kingdoms, teach them to obey the true source of life. And I will give you strength to do it. I will always be with you as you do it. And so, Restoration Church, we have a responsibility. If you have been changed, if you have experienced the transformation of God this Christmas, then we have a responsibility. We're agents to go into the world with our hands and our feet and our mouths and our eyes and our bodies to go into the world and do a good thing in it. To teach the world to obey. And if you don't obey, even now, if you have no idea, if, you, if you're still holding on to your own self-authority, if you're holding on to your own self-kingdom, if you're still selfish, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't want it anymore. I, I, I know that it's, it's a hard way to live my life. I know that it's a... I know that it's not fulfilling, satisfying. I, I've tried to go down that path several times and it just isn't working for me. And God, you say that if I give you my fake authority, then you will give me your, in turn, your real authority? To go into the nations and to preach your gospel, you say that it will be true? That's a promise you make? Amen, that's a promise He makes. You say that if I give you my brokenness, you will give me restoration? You say that if I give you my pain, you will give me your healing. If I give you my death, you will give me your life. Amen. That's a promise he makes. And if you need that in your life this morning, if you need that, if you're desperate for it this morning, then pray with me right now. Pray these words out of sincerity of your heart. Pray these words, father in heaven, God, I recognize that I am a broken person I've tried to do this on my own, Father, and it doesn't work. And so, God, I need you. God, I need you every hour. I need you. I need to repeat these words every single hour, Father. You are my salvation. You are my rescuer. You do not hold my sins against me, Father, but you have done a good thing in this world to restore me to the proper humanity, to be the person that you have created me to be. God, you're the branch, and I need a branch in my life. I need I need a, a, a true source of justice. I need a true source of righteousness. I need a true source of healing. And so, God, you say that if I give you my junk, and I do this by trusting, Father, that you have taken on my junk upon the cross, and you have died to my junk, and you've died to my sin, Father, that that you'll give me your life, Father. It doesn't make sense and I don't get it all, but God, if you say that can be true, then God, I give it to you now. Do your work in me, Father. I give you myself to do your work in me so that in time, Father, as you continue to do your work in me, every day, Father, I take up my cross. Every day, do your work in me that maybe in time, Father, you can use me to do good work in somebody else. We thank you for the branch. We thank you that David's line has been fulfilled. We thank you for your salvation and your rescue, that which you so desperately needed. Amen. If you pray that all sincerity of your heart, you have now just begun an incredible journey towards healing. And it's not going to come like a flood for most people. It doesn't come like a flood, but slowly but surely, it might happen like this. You, th- there might be a situation where um, maybe it was just automatic and robotic for you, just to be selfish. You didn't even think twice. Or or maybe you go home today and like Sunday afternoons, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but the devil likes to work on Sunday afternoons and creating tension in households. And all of a sudden, you go into your household and you're like, man, is it going to be another one of those days? And all of a sudden, you're like, maybe I shouldn't speak to my spouse that way. Or maybe I shouldn't speak to my children that way. Or maybe I shouldn't speak to my roommate that way. And it just begins with a little spark in your mind to say, wow, maybe there's a better option. And in 10 years from now, guys, that spark is going to become a wildfire in your heart. Where love is your motivation, the giving of yourselves for others. Selfishness isn't no longer part of your will. It is, but it's, it's something that is constantly being defeated. And it is a beautiful journey. Can anybody testify to the beauty of the journey? Amen. Amen.